We're going to read Acts 6, verses 8 through 15. And these are these kind of circumstances that come up. Um, this servant of this Lord, this guy named Stephen, is preaching. He's helping people. The authorities are getting upset with him. This is all the events leading up to that. And then he preaches to him for all of chapter 7. And I'm not going to read the sermon that he preaches, but I would urge you to read it. It's a beautiful sermon. But what we're going to do is we're going to pick up reading after the sermon concludes how the people respond to that and, uh, and what happens next. And um, again, the book of Acts is a book about the gospel going forth and going out, about how God's people uh, are a growing and going group. And uh, Acts is very realistic because it deals with all the obstacles both inside of God's people and outside of God's people, um, all the different ways that that growth, that the gospel growth should be stifled and yet it continues to go. So this is the word of the Lord from Acts 6. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with him, but they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who, saw, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like that of an angel. And so the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen begins his sermon, and he finishes it, and, he, and this is what the text tells us. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, they ground their teeth at him, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us. Lord, in this room, everybody in here encounters difficulty to varying degrees. Some of it's darker and some of it's deeper. And certainly throughout life, we will encounter more darker and deeper difficulty, dear God. And I pray now as we see your servant Stephen and we see the peace and the comfort he had in you, that you would be a comfort to our souls, that you would be a comfort to us, that you would be sweet to us, dear God, that we would find ourselves in you. Draw us to yourself, dear Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, my kids are little, so I can get to use them for sermon illustrations for several years. At some point, they're going to be teens. Apparently, that's not cool anymore. But I like using them while I can. Um, in our house, one of the most consistent sources of like discord and unrest are Legos. And um, I think this is like a natural law. I think this is a law of nature. There's no way around this. 
One child can play and enjoy his time with Legos. Two children can play together and enjoy themselves with Legos. And three children can play together and actually have a good time playing with Legos. But once you pass the threshold of three, it is not possible for children to enjoy Legos together. Um, It is written into our nature. Um, There's always three builders and then someone who decides that they're the guy functionally the Godzilla of Legoland, right? Um, maybe some of y'all were that kid and your siblings um, are still embittered about it. I don't know. But it is a massive fight when that happens. And uh, there are two ways they deal with that frustration and with that difficulty. And the first way is their more kind of natural, instinctive reaction, which is you just gather up everything you can and you control and secure your Lego creation with brute force, right? And with Legos, since you already obviously have tools of violence at hand, that usually involves blunt force trauma, you know, things <laughs> Legos weren't intended for. Um, but also with girls, guys and girls, different, you know, I, uh, this is not me, so I'm learning about this with my girls, they pinch and scratch each other. Um, <laughs> we're learning about it. And that never works. That way of dealing with their frustration, that way of trying to get their life back the way you want never works. And it just escalates and it escalates and it escalates until they get to the second method that they deal with difficulty. It hits a fever pitch and they run to their parents. And that's what our house is a lot. It's a lot of running to our parents. They fall out. We're climbing trees now. We're falling out of trees. And they run and scream for their parents. Um, When they bite their tongue, when they have nightmares when they scrape their knees. I don't know if y'all have been in a CVS recently, but if you might have noticed a spike in the price of Band-Aids. And it's because we're going through Band-Aids so recklessly at our house that there's actually like a crunch in the world supply of Band-Aids and the prices are going up. Um, we're scraping and hurting everything. And there's something to be learned, maybe even since relearned from children, because in all of those difficulties, sometimes they try to work it out, especially with Legos, by just enforcing their will upon the world around them and saying, I'm going to fix these circumstances and get what I want. But what ultimately solves their problem is when they run to us and when they jump in our arms and our embrace, when they see our smile, when they feel our strength, and we surround them and we hold them, and it's actually there that they find comfort. And that demonstrates the difference between Stephen and the men he's disagreeing with right here. And it's something fundamental to actually all of life. There's really fundamentally kind of two ways we deal with things not being the way we, w- we wish they were. And what you have, and, but those two ways are represented in the characters in this story. What you have in the authority figures is this method. I'm going to make life the way, I want it to, the way I want it to be by managing my circumstances, by imposing my will upon it. Things get hard, but I'm going to develop the ability to manage all the circumstances around it so that I can secure non-difficult lifestyle. And that's the authority figures here. And then this is Stephen, has an utterly different approach. The way he seeks comfort when things are not the way he wants them to be, but he seeks it in a person. One way, you try to manage your own circumstances. The other way, you go to a person. And I want us to examine the difference between those two things tonight. Because you're either seeking comfort in one of those two methods. And what I mean by managing your circumstances is I mean you're approaching life as a series of decisions for avoiding difficulty and getting the most best things for you, whatever it is you desire. 
I've got to procure friends. I've got to procure friends that give me a sense of acceptance, the right kind of job that gives me the money to afford the lifestyle I want. I've got to be moral enough to not shame myself or shame my family. I've got to be religious enough that God and I are good in terms. I've got to live the right kind of life so that this kind of ethereal force out there, God, karma, whatever it is, gives me good things and makes my circumstances manageable. Your hope is that by your actions, you can secure the kind of life you want, right? And in Stephen, he doesn't take that approach. He just runs and sees a person. And so I'm going to look through those two approaches and kind of bounce back and forth between how they're very different from each other and what they do. And the first thing I want us to see about these people is that when you fight to derive your comfort from managing your circumstances, you turn biblical religion into fear and guilt-driven work. When you deal with difficulty by trying to manage the circumstances on your own, you turn biblical religion into, into guilt and fear-driven work. And that's, this is the fundamental difference between Stephen and these men. They're debating... They're debating at the synagogue about Moses in the Old Testament, and they can't withstand his words, right? And they can't withstand his words, we're told from verse 10, because of the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Notice even here, his power, his grace, his wisdom are a result of his relationship, the person from whom he seeks comfort. And actually, that's why he's overwhelming them in the debate. So their plan is, they're frustrated, is to go and get men to testify against him before all the high priests and say, this guy's a heretic, he's preaching stuff that goes against the whole Old Testament. And so they bring up these accusations. This man, verse 13, he never ceases to speak words against this holy place, talking about the temple and the law. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Stephen's probably saying things like Jesus said, like, I will dest- you, this temple will be destroyed and I will raise it up three days later. And so they're saying this language that frustrates them because their whole understanding of the world is about the Old Testament law, and this guy's coming along and saying, you don't get it. And this temple's going to be torn down and rebuilt three days later. And what their religion has become for them is become for them the way they manage their circumstances. If I do these certain things, I can placate this God. If I give him sacrifices, the temple sacrifices, in places like Leviticus and the Old Testament, these are the... These are the rituals that identify God's people throughout the Old Testament that make them who they are. If I perform these sacrifices and I'm involved in these ceremonies, if I do the right things, I can expect God to make the circumstances of my life more manageable. And we do this, it looks different today, but we certainly do this as well. We're not doing Old Testament sacrifice, but there's this picture of, we all kind of have it in our mind, if I acted like this, God would give me a spouse, He'd make me comfortable. I'd find emotional stability. I could get the grades I wanted to get. I could get the job I wanted to get. If I perform the list of tasks that God has set out before me that I'm so frustrated I don't perform, I can, if I can start doing them, I can procure the circumstances that's going to make my life easy, right? That's not what the Bible teaches. That's an employer-employee relationship. That's actually the same relationship you have with the barista at Starbucks, Right? If I give you what you want, then I get back what I want. And to relate to God that way means you relate to God the same way you relate to the employees at Starbucks. If your employees at Starbucks are not a dig at you, I'm just saying, like, that's fundamentally flawed if you think that we relate to God the same way we relate to baristas. That, hey, here's my $1.50, now give me my coffee back. Hey, here's my little religious life, I hope you're happy with it, now make my life easy. And, of course, 
because religion deals with something so much more serious than coffee. <clears throat> and it deals with the well-being of your life, the internal condition of your soul. If you don't get it right, and if you don't provide the right, right sacrifices, the consequences are much more dire. And so out of fear and guilt that things might not be right between us and God, we try to manage our circumstances and manipulate Him by our performance. Totally missing what David says and the prophets say all throughout the Old Testament. But here's David in Psalm 51. King David, most prominent Old Testament figure up there with Abraham and Moses, seduces his neighbor, gets her pregnant, kills her husband. You just can't quiet time your way back into God's good graces after that. You can't build a wing on the church for the children's sports ministry. I don't know why churches have sports ministry, but you can't donate $10 million for the sports ministry and get back into good graces with that. There's just not a way around that. And David gets what the Old Testament's about because he gets what Jesus is about and he gets what the New Testament is about. And that's why he writes in Psalm 51, in this circumstance, sacrifice just doesn't get it done. And he says, sacrifices you don't desire. It's not what you want. What you want is a broken and contrite heart. David recognizes that in Psalm 51, and he points us to the difference that Stephen further explains in his sermon here, that religion is not about us doing stuff to appease an angry God. It's about Him doing stuff to restore us. As long as we seek comfort in trying to manage our circumstances, we're going to turn religion into this guilt and fear-based work. But... On the other hand, if you seek comfort in a person, you find that what biblical religion does is it pushes you into the embrace of a father. They're accusing Stephen of preaching against the Bible. And what he does in chapter 7, I didn't read it because we'd still be reading it, but what he does is he goes through the whole Old Testament and he demonstrates his knowledge of what religion really is. And he starts with Abraham, and he says, God comes to Abraham, and God says, Abram, go, and I will give you a promised land. And Abram never gets there. But God gives him a covenant sign of circumcision. It's the shedding of blood. And that was a mysterious sign that he didn't fully understand, but God gave him a sign to say, that's a sign from me that I put on your body to remind you that I will fulfill my promise. And the nation of Israel eventually, they kind of never get there. They get enslaved in Egypt. This, this is, again, this is the summary of a sermon. They get enslaved in Egypt over, over a period of centuries, and God calls this man Moses. In verses 34 and 35, God's saying, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their groaning. I've come down to deliver them in the form of Moses. And God delivers them, and they grumble against Moses. And in the wilderness, God gives them the tabernacle, which is, when they're in the wilderness, it functions like the temple where they perform sacrifices where God says, the tabernacle and the temple are the place where God and man comes together and God says, this is how we get restored. And through the sacrifices, he's teaching them about how God and man get restored. He's saying, and I gave you all the tabernacle to show you what I was doing. And I gave Moses the law to show you what I was doing. And I gave Solomon the temple, which is the permanent place, at least for a while, where the sacrifices took place. And they never got what was happening when all of that. They rejected the prophets, and then they rejected the man that the prophets talked about all the time, who is Jesus. They misunderstood. They misunderstood actually Leviticus seventeen eleven, which is actually the heart of everything that was happening 
up until Jesus came. Because in the midst of all that weird temple sacrifice stuff, as God's outlining it, and in Leviticus 17.11, he says something that's crucial for understanding all of it. God says this, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and so, he's talking about the sacrifice, so I have given you the sacrifice so that I can make atonement for your souls. And it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. All of it, it wasn't about what they did to appease God. What God is saying at the heart of this sacrificial language is, here's what I'm doing to make a way for you. I want you to come to the, sac- I want you to come to the temple and bring sacrifices, and I'm going to provide the sacrifices for you so that you can see that the blood of another was shed so that, you, so that you and I can be on right terms. What he was doing in all of that is he was saying, I'm restoring you, I'm delivering you. I'm providing the sacrifice. He was making a way for us to be restored. The temple, is a, it's not eradicated when Jesus comes. It's fulfilled. It's consummated when Jesus comes. God says in Hebrews that he's the final sacrifice. He's the lamb that all those animals were pointing towards. They were always signs pointing towards the true reality, which is Jesus. The temple's not eradicated. It's consummated when Jesus comes. God himself has come in the person of Jesus, and now... By his spirit, he's among his people. Sacrifices didn't redeem the people by their actions. They pointed to the sacrificial lamb and the actions he would perform on our behalf. That he'd redeem us, that he would restore us, that he would bring us near, that his blood would cover our iniquity. They were God showing us that we can do nothing to fix things between us. And what's funny is when you read the Old Testament and you read about, and then you read the New Testament, you read about these people who are really struggling with this notion of like, I thought it was about what I did, especially with regard to sacrifices that made things right between us. And then you look at the ways that we try to make things right between us and God. I mean, they were killing cows and goats and lambs. And you know, like our best attempts are like, they were going to extreme measures because they recognized it's got to be a little bit costly, right, to make things right between them. Our sacrifices are like so much less than that, you know? When we want to get right with God, we give him 15 more minutes in the morning. You know? We're not exactly killing cows. It's interesting that our sacrifices are so much smaller. But the whole point is that they didn't understand the sacrifices. It's him who pursues us, it's him who draws near to us, it's him who dies for us. And in the embrace of a father like that, there's deep comfort that no circumstance, not even death itself, can take from us. God's not stuck in a place. He's not stuck in the temple. He's not stuck in the outdoors. He's with his people. When, when your comfort is sought in a person, and in this person, the worst circumstances, you can't rob that comfort from you. And it turns religion into something that pushes you towards a father that loves you instead of turning religion into works that you run to because you're scared out of your mind. In some senses... Is your religious activity, the things that you do, are they driven by your security in the Father or by your insecurity? It's kind of the analytical question to ask yourself. Do you run to God like, or do you go to God like a student called to the principal's office or like a child who wants his dad? Another thing when we seek comfort in circumstances, one of the effects it has here and all throughout Scripture is it pushes people away. It's repellent. People who are irritants, 
They upset your plan because you're trying to manage your lifestyle and get it exactly the way you want it. And so people that throw off what you're doing who are difficult to deal with, they're messing up your plan. I mean, that, that's what people do, right? We have this picture of what our circumstances are supposed to be, and, we, and, and we'll move towards people that help us get there, but certain people disrupt those plans and they're irritating. And that's exactly what Stephen and Jesus and the apostles are doing to this community. They're saying, you've never understood anything you're doing. I'm throwing your plan in complete discord. You've created a culture of isolationism and self-righteousness because you've misunderstood everything. You thought that the way comfort comes is by this ridiculous formula. Do certain things and you'll procure certain desirable results. That's one of the dumbest ideas we've had in the kingdom. If you do certain things, you'll get what you want. I mean, like, that means you haven't encountered life at all. If you base your life in that formula, then anybody who gets in the way of it, it's got to be pushed out, right? This, this is what happens in our roommate situations, right? They bother you in whatever way it is. They become demanding. They become needy, whatever it is, and you begin to distance yourself from them. Because they're getting in the way of you having the pleasant experience that you had planned for your college, right? A cellar form is the way we kind of plan our social lives. There's, there's something we commit to to do with people, and they're not great for furthering kind of my plan and what I'd hoped for myself and everything, and then something else comes along, right? And it's more in line with what I was hoping for myself. And so the people from your previous plans, they're just kind of commodities that are no longer relevant, they're no longer helpful. This is revealed in the way, this is actually revealed in just simply who is around you. Are there difficult, hard to deal with people who are a regular part of your life? Or are they just on the periphery of your life? If all the difficult people are on the periphery of your life, it's because you fundamentally believe, I can only be happy and I can only have comfort if I can manage my circumstances and they wreck them. So I'm going to keep them out here because I actually need them to make me feel better about myself every now and then so I can spend time with a good person because that's part of my plan for making me feel like I want to feel. But I don't want to be deeply involved with them every day in a costly way that wrecks all my plans, right? We can't stand difficult people. When we seek comfort in our circumstances and managing them, we push people away. But when you seek comfort in a person, you move toward people. You become attractive. Because you've got to look at the way Stephen ends this episode that we read. In verse 59 and 60, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said that, he fell asleep. He prays for the men who kill him to be forgiven. He intercedes on their behalf before the Lord. And that's actually Stephen's whole ministry, if you read about him earlier. His whole ministry is actually just taking care and helping needy people and difficult people. It's not just that he doesn't run away from difficult people. He runs towards them. And in the face of the most difficult people, his enemies that are seeking the end of his life, he seeks their well-being too. He doesn't crowd about the injustice of it. He doesn't righteously call down curses on them. He doesn't condescend. He prays that they would be restored to the Lord. And the reason why is because his comfort is in a person. Because the restoration of Jesus, because, in the, because of the embrace of the Father. It's not, 
Not that it's just easy for him, but he desires they know the embrace of his father. And really, maybe you've, maybe you've seen this principle at work. It's just this simple principle. If you've met somebody that has great relationships, they want people with bad relationships to have great relationships. Uh, Elizabeth's parents love being married. And they just want people to have great marriages. And they want people to have, not in a condescending way, out of a genuine loving way. They just love being, it's an incredible encouragement and a blessing in my life. They love being married and they just look around and they just think, man, I want people to have great marriages. That's what Stephen said. I have a great father. Man, I would love for you to know my great father. And, I mean, the principle underneath all of it, this is the principle underneath, like, all of humanity, is when something is, something amazing is freely given to you, you bring everybody. We all do this, regardless of who you are, whether or not you profess faith in Jesus. When something amazing is freely given to you and offered to you and it's offered to anyone, you bring everybody. A perfect demonstration of this principle is if there is a Chipotle burrito whatever opening up within a 300-mile radius, Joseph Scola is like sending around a sign-up sheet, not at RUF, but at USC, because for the first week they give away free burritos, and Joseph Scola thinks, like we all think, this is amazing and free, and I love it, and I think everybody should come. Right? But if the way you get the things you want is by working for it, then anybody who gets in the way, you push away. Anybody who threatens your plans, you push away, right? If your comfort's in managing your circumstances, you push people away. If your comfort is in the favor of your Lord, you draw people in. Lastly, if your comfort's in circumstances, in the way you can manage them, then ultimately you can only have comfort if you can remove trials from your life. You can only have comfort if you remove trials from your life. Here are the religious authorities. Their authority structures getting shaken every way they thought about the world, about this message of Jesus undoing who they are. It's this, this notion of grace. When good people hear the message of grace, it's offensive. Because we were good, and so the bad people should get what they get, and good people should get what good people get. The message of grace offends good people. That's one of the primary themes of the New Testament. Because we love the idea that we're good and others aren't. And by us managing our lives well, because we enacted our plans and managed our circumstances well, we secure good things. These men are coming undone because Stephen and the apostles and Jesus and all of Scripture undo that whole program. The only way back to comfort and to peace for them, for these people, is to eliminate the difficulty, to get rid of what's producing comfort, and, you know, there are a few times in your life where you can, and this is good, this is okay, there are a few times in your life where you can get out of difficult circumstances, and that's all right. But for the most part, most of the trials and most of the things that we encounter in life, they're really beyond our control. And as long as we believe that comfort comes from managing our circumstances, there's really no ultimate guarantee, not much of a guarantee at all, that you'll have any lasting ability to eliminate trials and difficulties and that makes us angry, just like it made them angry. Stop undoing my system. And so we see them. They heard these things, and they were enraged, and they ground their teeth, and they killed him. It grows from debating to scheming against him to rage to murder. Don't tell me that my plan for making my life livable 
doesn't work and don't get in the way of it. What happens when your plan doesn't work? What happens when unchangeable circumstances intervene in your life? After you exhaust all the possible ways that you could still get what you want, and you find that, okay, I still can't change anything, do you have comfort or do you find yourself angry? This is, in this room, there are going to be people that die from terminal illness. In this room, there are going to be people that are going to be permanently harmed in an accident. In this room, there are going to be people that are permanently harmed through the violent acts of others. It's going to happen. At some point, we're all, and probably most of us already have, really come up against the reality that we're really mostly powerless to change our circumstances. And you see, if that's true, then we have little hope for ever having any meaningful sense of comfort if our plan for finding comfort is managing our circumstances. Unless it's true that comfort comes in the form of a person. And what Stephen's demonstrating for us here is that if comfort comes in the form of a person, then even in the midst of circumstances you can't change, there's peace to be had. The comfort of the Lord is quite different. He promises the Lord's going to be, that life's going to be difficult. There will be trial. There will be unchangeable, horrible circumstances and that He will be with His people. When your comfort's in a person, you actually can have comfort in the midst of difficulty, not only when you can alleviate the difficulty. And that's exactly where you find Stephen. Because the thing that's kind of most often talked about in this passage is the calmness and the peacefulness of his tone and his demeanor as these people are, are spitting venom at him and killing him. He had a face like an angel, right? It's a picture of peace and serenity. He's very calm when he faces death. Where does that come from? How does that happen, right? How does somebody have comfort in this circumstance? The text tells us he's full of the Holy Spirit and he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's how he has comfort. And what's being spoken of here, there's a, there's a unique detail. All throughout the, in Psalm 110, Mark 14, Hebrews 1, 4, 8, 10, all throughout Scripture, when Jesus is described having completed his work of redemption, he's described as sitting at the right hand of God. This is the only place where we're told he's standing at the right hand of God. And why is that? Because what Jesus sees is he sees what sorry what Stephen sees is he sees Jesus standing to receive him. Everybody in here has disappointing days. Everybody in here has hard days, hard months, hard years. There are hard lives. Um, in my worst days, the best thing, the balm to my soul, are my wife and my dad. They can't remove the circumstances, whether they're circumstances brought on by someone else or circumstances brought on by me being an idiot. But their embrace and their love and their affection, they have a, the capacity not to change the circumstances, but they do have the capacity to alleviate despair in my heart. And that principle is at work in all of our lives. But friends and family can only do so much because there are limits to their ability. But if there's a person who's ultimate, who's powerful, who's all-powerful, who's all-wise, whose steadfast love endures forever, 
whose love you can never be pried away from, then his embrace and his affection and his words, they're actually so comforting that what Jesus, uh, sorry, what James tells Christians in his letters, he says, count it joy. Count it actually complete joy when you encounter trials of many kinds because it matures your faith, because it causes you all the more to rest in the grace of your Father, and that produces maturity. Your comforts in a person, there's peace to be had, even in the face of insurmountable difficulty, overwhelming difficulty. One of the things this text does, just to close real briefly, is it forces us to see how trivial our complaints are, right? All the things that rob our comfort, rob our peace, we're always whining about our circumstances, right? Stephen is full of grace. He's full of power and faith and comfort. And he's full of it in the face of violent opposition. We lack, I lack, so much grace and faith and power and comfort in the midst of like the most tedious details that annoy the crap out of me, right? Like, why... My kids might go to bed asleep at 8. Why do they stay up until 9.15 jumping on the bed? That robs all peace and power and grace and faith for me. Right? Stephen's full of it when people are killing him. I am empty of it when my children demand 30 more minutes of my day. You're empty of it when your schedule doesn't work out, right? Dealing with the office here when your roommates are bugging you, when your friends hurt your feelings, when you have a job that's boring, Right? We don't get our way in the smallest things. We lack grace, we lack comfort, we lack faith, we lack power in the smallest things. The world is standing against this guy and they're going to kill him. And he's full of grace, and he's full of power, and he's full of comfort. What our lack of comfort in all those circumstances reveal, they reveal how much our comfort is in the circumstances and not in the person of Jesus. So where's your comfort in life and death? Are you trusting in your ability to kind of secure the good life for yourself? Do you understand the foolishness of that? <clears throat> Does your approach to comfort offer any hope for Joseph and Melissa Dennessy? Joe and Melissa, are a, he's the REF campus minister at UAB. They're friends of Elizabeth and ours. I grew up in Birmingham. We actually went to high school together. Last week, his first child, Joseph IV, was born at 26 weeks, which is 14 weeks early. There are dozens of complications. His lungs aren't working. His kidneys aren't working. There's fluid on his brain. He had no idea what's going to happen. Less the guy, he didn't live a week. He died yesterday, Joseph IV. Joe and Melissa did everything right. They love Jesus. They're faithful servants of the gospel. They really are generous, good, responsible people. And their child lives six days. Does how you approach comfort offer any hope to them? Are you going to tell them that there's a way they could have done it better? You know how offensive that would be? That they could have made better decisions, been better people to change this? If you believe that you can manage your circumstances and that's the way to peace and comfort then you offer no hope to them, and their story is not very unique. 
because they don't trust in their ability to manage circumstances. And if you talk to them, what they would do to you is they would read to you Isaiah 65 because it's what they read to each other all last week. And this is what it says. For behold, this is what Joe read to Melissa all last week. This is God's promise to his children. For behold, I created new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I created Jerusalem to be a joy, her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard and heard in Jerusalem the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. They're crying today, Joseph and Melissa are, but they're crying with an ever-present comfort because they trust their father, because they ran to their daddy. And he says to him, the Lord says to Joe and to Melissa exactly what he said to Abraham in Genesis and exactly what Peter preached in Acts. He says this, my promise for blessing is to you, it's also to your children. He's telling them what I tell my children all the time. I'm going to be with you and I'm going to take care of you. It's a person who gives comfort. Does your comfort offer hope for the stories that are represented in this room? Because in this room, everybody's bearing different stories and some are darker and harder and longer term. And for some of you, for different reasons, they haven't been. There's difficulty, there's trial, and there's pain in this room right now among the lives of the people in this room, that's never going to fully get wiped away in this life. It's just going to have consequences to the end. Do you have an understanding of comfort that allows hope for those stories? Because those stories are part of all of our lives. Where's your comfort in life and death? Is it in your ability to manipulate your circumstances, or is it in a person? Let's pray.